Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff at the World Business Academy, and I'm here in a virtual room thanks to Zoom with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's president and founder. And Benjamin Schwartz is also with us. He's producing the show today. The World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit action incubator dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording this show on May 16th, 2020. As always, I would like to invite listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org. If you have questions or comments about the show today or anything you would like for us to discuss in the future, we always love hearing from you. I'd also like to ask our listeners to support the podcast, however big or small. If you have the means and you appreciate what you do, please make a tax-deductible contribution to the World Business Academy at worldbusiness.org slash donate. Another way to support the podcast and our work is to give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening. This will also help us raise our profile. As always, you can listen on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio. Just search World Business Academy. All right, Ronaldo. So we have a big show today. Uh, we only have 30 minutes to get into everything. Let's get going. Well, thank you, Christy. I'm fascinated by um, what's happening. This Week magazine, which uh, I think is a very good summary, a pretty impartial summary of what happened in the prior week, particularly in the U.S., but globally. And the cover was of Uncle Sam looked like Humpty Dumpty, and the headline screaming was, in free fall. And what do they mean by free fall? What they mean by free fall is that the economy is continuing to plummet down, and nothing is doing anything to break its drop yet. In other words, the, the, the government, the United States government particularly, is woefully inept at slowing the free fall, let alone reversing it. So we end up with these statistics that are amazing. Now, before I get into them, really want to encourage people, please write us a note. Be sure to tune in again next week because this is going so fast now. It's amazing. And if you haven't got questions in your mind about the stuff we cover quickly, once over lightly, I, I, you're not paying attention. And I really would like you to think about that. Yeah, we've been getting a lot more comments and uh, feedback from our listeners, and that we all we, we love that. That's wonderful, and as that's why we're now doing this podcast on a weekly basis, and we'll, we're trying to answer things, especially as they are really uh, raising to the level of uh, salience. Yeah, and I get that, but what I'm saying is, with the speci specificity that we now have of topics, what I'm hoping is someone will say to us, like they did in the real estate thing. Hey, would you dive in deeper, which we're going to do another segment on our real estate part today. So if they give me a, something that they want me to dive into, it's fun to go look into that particular answer for that particular question. And I think it'll be, typically it's a question other people have on their minds too. So let's, let's look at this free fall. What is free fall defined as? Well, one definition of free fall is 33.4 million people filed for unemployment in the last eight weeks. And by the way, that was up 3 million again this last week. So when I say free fall, you've got a 3 million and a 3 million. When you start to see 2 million, 1 million, 500,000, zero, that would tell me you're breaking the free fall. Mm -hmm. Okay? Putting jobs back again hasn't even started yet. Yeah. It starts after you break the free fall. So and we haven't done that. And, and so I'm going to predict, and I think, unfortunately, this is rather safe. You're going to lose another million or so jobs this week. Uh, between now and September 15th, uh, the betting, and Wall Street at least, which is completely wrong, that the economy will be bounce back because many of the states 
have 40 states now have plans for reopening partially or fully. And that's wrong because it ain't going to happen. And I love this quote by um, a fellow named Mark Tepper, who's a well-regarded CEO of Strategic Wealth Partners. And what he's been telling people is, for example, and we're going to get to hotels, stay out of investing in the hotel space. Uh, we're not talking about a temporary little glitch in world travel or globalization. What we're talking about, and I'm reading now, quote, this isn't a cash flow issue. This is true, real demand destruction. That money's gone. They're not going to recapture it six months from today. And and he estimates Q2, so the second quarter, hotel revenues will drop by 50% or more. Totally think he's, if anything, being conservative. Now, why is that relevant? And we'll talk about it in the context of hotels in a minute. It's relevant because we need to look at what demand destruction means. And it doesn't just mean that people are unemployed and can't work. It also means that they won't have the money to buy when they get back to work, or they'll be so intimidated by it that they'll choose not to buy at the same level or in the same way, and that's demand destruction. And demand's going to have to recreate itself in a new form in the post-COVID world. Well, even if they open restaurants, bars, you know, will people be brave enough to go back? There's that. But then also, people are saving what they can if they have any income, because they're not going to spend it because the uncertainty of the future is so great. So, I mean, again, you know, why, if they have money to spend, this is not a good time to spend it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so you're not going to go back traveling internationally because COVID's still wildly available. But even when COVID's gone, if it ever goes away completely, uh, in say, let's say a year or two from now, which would be an optimistic assessment, the the idea that we're going to have a vaccine by December is insane, obviously. But, you know, no, it's less insane than putting bleach in your veins. So I guess <laughs> on, on that continuum, it actually makes sense. But anyway, the point of it is the demand destruction of hotel and airline businesses is a function of the fact that we are going to be living in a world where we have to adjust dramatically to new realities. Those And, 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 and I want to... I want to just touch for a second, because it's not just that the unemployment rate is so high. It's also that we had a 16% loss of retail sales last month, which is 16.4%, which was down eight from 8% down the month before. Now, many people are associating that with the price of oil in the gas tank. That's not the full explanation. As you can well imagine, the amount of retail shopping going on right now or lack thereof, is being reflected not only in the bankruptcies of people like Neiman Marcus and J.C. Penney's, which filed yesterday, it's a, a, and the gap. It's, it, it's, it's, it's reflected in the fact that even that, that restaurants, if they're doing a third of their normal business with takeout, it's that uh, you can't get your teeth fixed yet in some states. Uh, you can't, um, you, and, and even when you can, there's only so much you can do so fast. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you've been delaying medical costs and dental costs, you're going to put that in front of going to the movies, and I'm not sure going to the movies is going to be a good investment for at least the next two years anyway. And when it does come back, it might come back in the form of theaters that are literally chopped up and divided into separate box sections so that you can go into your own box and know that you're only going to have the germs of your own party. And you might be able to rent a box for two, a box for six, a box for eight, a box for ten. My guess is those same places will start to uh, serve more expensive food. Popcorn won't get them there. So you're going to see bars and restaurants associating. In fact, I could see bars and associations forming with theaters that are not under common ownership. Uh So right here in in Santa Barbara, we have this great little restaurant, Italian restaurant, Molly's. And it's, you know, two doors down from one of our best theaters. And they're already doing package deals where if you went to the theater, you could, you know, get a ticket for food at Molly's at a discount. Well, now that COVID's hit, 
I can see Molly, who is doing takeout, doing a deal with the theater, saying when you open it up and people can have food, why don't you sell them something that's going to cost them $15 to $20 an app at, at, at dinner as opposed to 7 or 8 mm-hmm. a hot dog. So you can be sure, as always happens in these cases, the diversity of people's ability to spend will be dramatically affected by the disequilibrium of basically wealth. Mm-hmm. So the wealth disequilibrium we've achieved in this country is going to hurt us in the comeback. And that's why it may be we're for a permanent Andrew Yang or semi-permanent Andrew Yang solution. So there's a new $3 trillion stimulus that the Congress passed on Friday. Um, you know, Despite the fact Trump and the Republicans saying dead on arrival, I don't believe it's dead on arrival. I think that that's a hollow bluff. I think the pressure on, in fact, Trump said in the press conference, but we'll have a deal soon. I mean, he's got to have a deal. Because the worse it gets, the worse it is for the Republicans. You can't have both a pandemic with a night over 90,000 dead people today. Can you imagine what it's going to be come November? If you, and by the way, simple arithmetic. Just add 2,000 dead people per week between now and November 1st, and you're going to know how many dead are going to be. And that's a conservative estimate. Could be worse because of the bad reopening. So when you look at all these factors together, it's really clear. And in the, in the, I started saying the three million, three trillion stimulus, we've included another $1,250, Andrew Yang style payment to people. But what's really happening, and Andrew ran his campaign on the idea that robotics would threaten the average American worker. I did a piece way back then about how we work more hours in America than any other country mm-hmm. in the world. We work 54 hours on average instead of 40. I mean, the French have got us beat there at 36. Now, one way to deal with robotics is short numbers work week. Where is it written in stone that Americans should work so hard? Why can't we make it a full-time wage if you work 30 hours or 25? If there, in fact, is going to be an excess of labor, which there is. Why can't we have the uh, government be the employer of last resort so that, like in other advanced Western democracies, until you can get a job that pays you more, you get a 1000 bucks a month indefinitely. And the idea that that will disincentivize you from working... I don't know anybody who is happy living on $1,000 a month if they could go out and get a job for $2,000 a month. And getting a job for $2,000 a month ain't that tough. So the idea that you would stay off of $1,000 a month, and I'm saying not that tough, in this climate, in the post-COVID world, it'll be, it won't be that tough. Because the number of jobs that we're going to have to retrain for. So you, a waiter or a waitress is not a job description for the future. I could make a case that there'll be as many cooks or close to it um, post-COVID as there are now because there'll be institutional feeding, be deals like I've talked about with theaters and restaurants. Uh, you know, we've just seen that there is a, a right now, I guess it's I think I, Grubhub is a, in the process of being acquired by, by um, Uber Eats. Uber yeah. Eats. Well, Uber, by, by Uber, Uber, which I think is brilliant and will change the dynamics from 40% of the market being controlled by DoorDash to now it'll be 55% controlled by the combination of Uber and, and, and um, their new acquisition. So I, I think that if you look at these factors, a lot of cooks can stay employed. Uh, I think food waste will go down, by the way, because institutional cooking is far less exotic. But there won't be as many busboys, hardly any, and there sure won't be a lot of dishwashers, and there aren't going to be any waitresses or waiters, or certainly a fewer number, let's say half of what there was before COVID. I just want to clarify that what you mean by institutional cooking is 
like these kind of cloud kitchens or kitchens where you're making uh, branded restaurant food in a single location as opposed to in a, a million different restaurants all over the place. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Well, that's one thing. Well, that's one thing. I'm also talking about, a, let's say, a, a, a kitchen like Molly's that serves two, rest, two uh, theaters that mm-hmm. are located in her neighborhood. I'm also talking about a situation of um, in-plant feeding because um, we're going to see, are we going to have senior citizens' homes after this is over? I think so. I think the rules for running them are going to be dramatically different, but that's implant feeding, and that's not going to change. Uh, I'm also including in that implant feeding the idea that we're going to want to have, um, you're going to see more companies like Blue Apron, there's at least five now, that are selling direct meals to home, various stages of preparation. Some raw materials, just, you know, the steaks are chopped, but they don't cook them. Uh, The vegetables are chopped, but they're not cooked. Others are doing things with process, meaning uh, frozen nutritional drinks and, and, and that sort of thing, smoothies. So th- there's going to be less eating, I think, because we'll financially we'll be less able to eat as much as we want to, except for the top, say, 10%. So for the 90% that can't afford to eat as much as they want or out as often as they want or as much as they like, there'll be some reduction in eating. I don't think that reduction in e- eating, however, will equal the reduction in the people on the payroll for, for waitressing, busboying, uh, dishwashing, and a few cooks. So the, those jobs are not coming back. And the question is, if that's what you were doing, what do we retrain you for? And by the way, think about it this way. We had a class that's just graduating this week, hmm. 2020. Uh, what a tragedy that these people are going to come out of school without a job, in the worst job market since the Great Depression, and they're going to say, how do I, how do I start? Because it used to be you could get a job waitressing mm-hmm. while you were waiting to find your real job. That's gone. It used to be there were all kinds of part-time jobs. The, the gig economy was full of part-time jobs. That's all going away. People who think we're going to go back to normal just aren't looking at this rationally. So what I want to urge people to do is to look at these statistics. These are really critical statistics, as we do every week. So in the last year, oil, if you own stock and oil, down 53%, and it's going to get worse, folks. The temporary artificial inflation of the oil markets that Trump is doing today, and he's been doing for the last two weeks will not be enough to save big oil. Saudi Arabia this morning, just this morning, announced another one million barrel a day cutback. Hmm. Why? Because they're still awash with too much oil. And that, that Trump pushed the price of Western Intermediate crude from $23 a barrel to $29 a barrel, basically artificially inflating the price of oil, costing American consumers more money, by the way. I mean, he's like acting like an OPEC chief. <laughs> no. Because I know his buddies in Saudi Arabia buy his condos at a marked up premium because he's been money laundering for him. But that's a whole other issue I want to do with the show. <laughs> I'd like to get into the money laundering, but I won't. The key issue, though, if you look at it, is the price between West Texas Intermediate Crude, which is at $29 as of yesterday, and the price of the of Brent Crude, which is the standard for the rest of the world in the North Sea oil, has never been close to about 8 to 10% apart because there are extra costs in Brent oil and there's extra transportation costs. When you see Brent oil at $30, $31 a barrel, and you see 29 West Texas, it means someone's been fiddling with the markets in America. That fiddling cannot go on indefinitely because the demand continues to drop. And as it drops, the world continues to be awash in oil, even with additional cutbacks in oil. Uh, and if they were successful, if Trump were successful, which he's trying to do, to get the price up to $40 a barrel because he thinks at 36 37 he'll start getting fracking again, I think he's dreaming, and if he did succeed, it would be one of the shortest booms in history because it would collapse within two or three months. And by the way, major banks, major banks uh, like PNC, ninth largest bank in the country, heavy, heavy, heavy oil loans, 
They just sold, they were the largest single share owner in BlackRock, 22%. They sold it all for cash. They got to shore up their balance sheet. There's going to be a plethora of bank challenges throughout the Midwest, and we'll talk about that in a few. So oil down 53%. Dow Jones in the last year down 8.4%. Gold up 35.6%. And because I always offer this advice at every show, is it too late to buy gold? No, it's on its way to 2000. So I think you got, if I were you, I'd get it if you missed the first if you miss the first 500 points and run, you can still catch the next couple of 300 at least. Okay, uh, another statistic that's going to talk about the issues of devaluation. AP Muller Maersk, the largest container shipper, has declared that COVID-19 pandemic will lead to a 25% reduction in total volume of goods in Q2. It's going to go down further in Q3. By the way, interesting story yesterday came up from China that the production capacity of China is now so high they can't get enough demand. Hmm. So they're now storing up tons and tons and tons of finished goods. They're rapidly trying to convert their factories over to making um, COVID-19 type products for sale to the, third, to the rest of the world. But right now, their main customers, America and Europe, are in a world of hurt. If I get time, I'll talk about Europe this show. If I don't, please remind me to do so uh, next week. Okay. Um, I want to just talk about the uh, issue associated with hotels. We talked before about this in our real estate series. Why is it a bad time to buy hotels? I gave you the quote earlier by Mark Tepper that I thought was significantly impressive. But now I'm going to give you a quote that absolutely defies logic and could only be found in some place like a public release from a CEO of a hotel chain or inside the covers of Through the Looking Glass. Because this is like a tea party in Alice in Wonderland. This is Alice in Wonderland. Here's what he said. Knowing, by the way, that a branded hotel requires about 30 to 40% occupancy to break even. With PPP in for a couple of months, that'll be maybe guess, quite a bit better maybe, but you're still taking 30 to 40%. And some are higher than that because of leverage. Okay. Well, if hotels drop 50% already, and we're just at the beginning of the depression, we're just at the beginning of the pain cycle, what will they drop as the depression gets wider and wider dispersed? Particularly when you look at things like what's happening in Europe, which has had a significant destruction in GDP already, and clearly is in a recession, could get in, could be pulled into the depression by the U.S., but certainly is in a recession, okay? Well, some strategists believe that hotel stocks, Hilton, MGM Resorts, are a buy because it's a great opportunity to get in at a low price. And to this extent, I was absolutely fascinated. Barry Sternlich. Now, Barry Sternlich is a guy I've followed for many, many years because he's very famous. He, he built the Starwood Property Trust. And, um, He's a very smart guy. He believes um, that, uh, you know, just whistle the graveyard, better day tomorrow. And he's the last guy that will ever admit that there's, a, that there's any problems in paradise. At his earning meetings last Thursday, Chairman and CEO Barry Sternlich of the Starwood Property Trust said, quote, nobody's selling hotels or buying hotels. Nobody. And believe me, we look. We try to buy here and there, but they're not going to sell on trailing 2019 earnings. Nobody's doing that. Well, you know what? Mr. Sternlich, keep your money keep your money in cash because you're going to have a whole lot of buying opportunities in the not too distant future. Why? There's too many hotel rooms. In fact, what we would like to see happen is in the case of excess retail capacity, take a shopping center, I'm going to say there's at least 70-80% of the shopping centers in America are in terrible financial shape. And let's say that shopping center was anchored by a Penny's, which is quite common, and a Sears, which is also common, or a Macy's, which is common, or a Nordstrom's, or a Neiman Marcus. You get the point. Or a Gap. 
The point is, those stores have all gone away. Some of them will come back, I believe, in better shape. So when Penny's dumps all the bad debt it should never been stuck with in the first place, when it sheds all that uh, private equity debt, I think Penny's could come back because it does have a reputation it could restore quality for price. Mm -hmm. That's what Penny stood for, quality for price. Now, if that's true, um, they make a comeback, but they don't come back with as many stores. They don't come back with as many square feet. So you're talking about repurposing those shopping centers into something else. Similarly, you're going to have to repurpose hotels. So if there is an excess capacity, let's say, coming out of post-COVID-19 of at least 50% of hotel rooms, and that's probably a good number, but let's be conservative. Say it's only 35%. Mm -hmm. 35% of all the hotel rooms in America is more than enough to put every single homeless person in a hotel room, all 550,000 of them nationwide. And I would urge that those hotels be broken up by types of homeless conditions. So if you're homeless because you have drug addictions or uh, substance abuse, you're in one hotel. Another hotel would be full of people who have psychiatric issues. Keep those people all together. A third hotel is people who just fell on harm's times. Uh, you know, a divorce at the wrong time, uh, a medical bill they couldn't pay, increasingly common. Um, it, it, you, there's a lot of different reasons people can lose their home. Those are the third kind. And there's a fourth class now. The fourth class of hotels is temporarily getting back on your feet after COVID-19. So that fourth class of homeless is going to start to build as is the third class. So what we've got is we've got an opportunity to take these excess hotel rooms, which are not going to have buyers. Barry Sternlich, if you're buying hotels in a market like this, you're a fool and your investors ought to know it. You should be selling hotels. And if I were you, I'd sell them while they're still worth a whole bunch and get some eminent domain money if you can. But if you don't, if the longer you wait, the less that hotel will be worth it you want to dump on the public and the public's going to want to buy it. But the public's going to be forced to pay a fair price. So if the value of your hotel went from $1,000 a room down to $600 a room, when you sell it to the government to house homeless people, it's not going to work. <laughs> By the way, one great thing about hotels is most of them come with small or even large kitchens, which means, now back to my institutional feeding issue, we can feed the, the homeless in an institutional setting because we'll have plenty of cooks and they will need dishwashers there and there will be some waitstaff as well. But the point of the story, no, not a lot of waitstaff. So, so we've got all the infrastructure right there to literally take every homeless person in America off the street. Now, I ask you, America, it's a terrible thing to go through COVID-19, but if we could learn that lesson, we would at least have put some of the pain to good use. I think there's some other painful lessons we can learn, particularly in education and a few other, but I'll, let me touch on those in, in, in future sessions. Uh, Christy, what do you think of the hotel crisis? Well, I mean, I think I think this is an, an interesting, innovative solution, and it's, you know, we have this excess capacity. We have a lot of people who need a place to lay their heads. Why not put those together? My one question, though, is what's the idea of paying for it? Who pays for this? You know, how can that be covered? Okay. Okay. Let me do this. When we're down to like um, three or four minutes for the show, when I'm not sure where we are, but when we get down to that, I'm going to go into that very subject because that's that's broadly covers the whole question. Exactly. Who's paying for the three trillion? Pay Who paid exactly. for the last three and trillion? I think, and I think okay. those are the kinds of questions that when you know these your these this idea this concept is this great concept. It makes sense. But is it is it you know a liberal yeah. wish list or whatever the yeah, you know? Yeah. And I want to get yeah. into that. I, I definitely want to get into that. But I before leaving this idea of hotel rooms um, because I see that as a industry that can be repositioned and will be repositioned whether they like it or not. You will either go willingly, Sternlich, 
or you will go unwillingly. But if you're smart on behalf of your share owners, you'll lead this change, not drag, go kicking and screaming. The other, the other comment I wanted to make on that is that it's it's changing the model from, you know, short term stays. You you stay there for a night or two nights. You know, the sort of the typical business traveler in a lot of these hotels to longer extended stays. And and that's I think we were talking earlier about Airbnb and where where that kind of a business model might shift. Yeah, I think I think Airbnb's business model will shift to more permanent housing. So in in a country that's already got too few rental units, which we do, and there won't be a lot of capital to build new multifamily dwellings, I think people who've been renting their rooms on Airbnb have already started renting yeah. out to longer term, thirty days and longer. Because there's a demand for 30-day tenants, which mm-hmm. will increase as COVID-19 gets mm-hmm. further behind us. That demand is only going to accelerate, and I don't see the demand going in travel for the reasons I gave earlier. I don't see travel coming back fully. Is it going to come back some? Yes, I believe it could come mm-hmm. back 50%. But that's a heck of a hit. 60 would be enormously optimistic. In addition, you've you got to remember that this pair-to-pair city travel is going to adversely affect American hotels, because we are the worst disaster in the world yeah. for deaths and cases, by far. I mean, we have we have 5% of the population and 25% of the deaths. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane how bad we're... And by the way, that hasn't stopped free fall either yet. So when you're looking at these industries repositioning themselves, which we must do, because you've got all that stock, all those physical buildings, you don't want to tear them down and burn them down. You want to turn them into something construction, infrastructure for infrastructure for the homeless, yeah. as an example, and use the feeding plants inside of those hotels to solve the problem we have now with with all the issues with with with. Um, I mean, look at the way we're overrun with our uh, food banks. Yeah, I mean, we can't keep up with the demand. Look, look at these cars, ten thousand long in, in parts of Texas, it's terrible driving up to get food in their trunks, a hundred pounds. It's at a unconscionable, so, really. It's it's unconscionable in the richest nation in the world, which is a, which, by the way, is not going to be the richest nation in the world. I want to give people a little little, little barometer here. Do you know what the richest nation in Latin and Central America was 10 years ago? Venezuela. Bingo. Poorest today by far. By the way, and complete free fall. And we're going to we're going to all go on the Venezuelan diet soon. <laughs> What's that? It's famine. Beans and rice? It's, no, it's famine. famine. It's because you they have their infrastructure has been destroyed and so they they those yeah. you know it's yeah. like they, you know, they it's call $80, it. You know it's 80 dollars. It's 80 dollars <laughs> a pint for uh, uh, gasoline in Venezuela. Uh, and they claim it's by the gallon, but if you try and get a gallon, they, they squeeze you off in a pint or two. And that's if you waited two days in line for it. And that was a country where gas was free until yeah. less than a year ago. So who's going to pay for all this stuff? Because I, I could keep going on. Because By the way, next time I want to do something on health care because it's clear we're going to get universal health care coming out of COVID-19. Again, we have to. out of this tragedy. I mean, yeah, we have, we to. have to. I mean, this is the, the, the only logical response to this kind of... Look a, at all the people who yeah. resisted Obamacare because they had good employer insurance and now they're unemployed, which means they lost their insurance, which is exactly what we said when we kept putting for, forward, we need universal health care. By the way, you also got to look at the fact that the hospitals are in terrible financial shape. Their yeah. entire business model is broken and the private versus public hospital chains has all got to be rationalized yeah. and even Cuomo said so the other day. So who's going to pay for it? Well, the good news is when you have interest rates this low, and they're not going up in the foreseeable future because we're going into a deflationary economy, not an inflationary economy, the reality, and it's an overwhelming reality, is it's the best time in the world to spend money. When you look at the all-time, and I've said this before, when you look at the all-time highest debt ratio to GDP in the history of the United States, it wasn't the colonial war. It was after World War II. 
And when you look at a graph year by year of the ratio of debt to GDP from 1946 all the way to 1970, what you see is a line that just constantly goes down, 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 down in a great clip. So much so that nobody even talked about the debt from 1946 to 1970 because it wasn't an issue because the GDP was growing so much faster that we were being able to service debt, which was a smaller and smaller percentage of our GDP, and the interest rates were relatively good. Right now, they're at preposterously low rates. So we should be spending money now when the interest rates are virtually zero, and we should take those infrastructure spending, we should fix our transportation, fix our housing stock, fix our hotel properties, fix our homeless population, fix our transportation needs, and most important, we need to fix our economic system for energy creation and distribution, because that's what will create more wealth than any single thing you could do. The only way to climb out of this debt, Christy, is if we take and make energy almost free, which means you want solar, you want mm -hmm. wind, you want geothermal, because those forms of energy, I could mention a couple others, but those three primarily, mm -hmm. can produce energy at a fraction of the cost of fossil fuels today. So the idea that we're, we've been propping up the oil companies, they got a big chunk of money in the, in the last uh, stimulus bill for unknown reasons. We continue to give them all kinds of tax breaks. It's not going to save this broken industry. And frankly, the industry is killing us anyhow. Right. So what we need to do is to switch to renewables. And as we do, we will create so many jobs and we'll create so much money, wealth, that it will create an expanding GDP that will grow faster than our requirement to repay it. I guarantee it. And I think this is fantastic. I want to talk to you next time also about the this new book coming out called The Deficit Myth. It's by Stephanie Kelton, where she sure. she talks about – she really tries to bust the myth that government deficits are the same thing as household debt, which is which – is, Well, you know, let's do this. And, and it, which is, okay, yeah, it, it's, it's a false equivalency. That, yeah, totally. And let's just break debt into different kinds. Student debt is radically different than automobile debt, radically different than mortgages, radically different than government debt, radically different than municipal debt, radically different than state debt. All those forms of debt that all get in corporate debt, all get lumped together as debt. They're not. Right. They're, the only thing they have in common is that word, and then everything else after that changes. So let's leave that for this week with one final thought. I love The Economist two weeks ago. Its cover was called The Dangerous Gap, The Markets Versus the Real Economy. We talked about that on the show last week. We didn't know this cover was coming out. I just want to leave you with this thought. The market is going to be forced to get real very, very soon. When it does, the drop in stock prices will be so significant. It is not wise to try and pick the winners from the losers today. There are companies and industries that are going to do very well in the post-COVID world. They're already on Amazon, retailers that go over the internet, um, electronics. There's all kinds of things that are going to do very well. But when the entire stock market takes a 20 to 30% slam, which is what's taught, which would equalize it to even close to what the real economy is doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when the real economy and the stock market come back in alignment, which will happen inevitably one way or another, you're going to see the all ships come down when the tide recedes. And then you go step in and pick the winners. If you pick them today, you're still picking them at when the tide is high mm -hmm. and the tide hasn't yet gone out to sea. You need to wait so that all boats can rise and fall in the tide and then pick the good boats that are seaworthy once that you're in the new stable period. With that, thanks for tuning in. Can't wait to hear what your questions and comments are for next week. And thanks, Christy. Thanks, Benjamin.